page one seven one two. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the altar room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner, inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered, which he offers for himself and for the sin the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place. And not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and a drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy holy place once for all of, once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled unto those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Him unblemished to God, cleansing our conscience from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that He has died, as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Hi everyone, it's great to be here this morning. It's great to be able to share God's word with you. Uh, I, as uh, was mentioned, I work down at Queensland University of Technology, talking to students there, persuading them to follow Jesus and live for Him. It is a great pleasure uh, to do that work with Liz and others. Liz is a fantastic part of our team, uh, training students, discipling women to be living for Jesus. Uh, and so, thank you, Anne Street, for your partnership and support of Liz and the really invaluable ministry that she does on campus. But I'm here to open God's Word and to talk you through what's going on here. So let me pray for us as we come to this part of God's Word. Father, we pray that you take these words and make them live in our hearts and minds. Ideas that seem distant from our lives, but show us, Father, how immediate, how relevant, and how good they are. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Some promises are not worth the paper they're written on. You ever had that kind of moment where someone makes you a promise, and you realise either in the moment or afterwards, well, what was the good of that? 
uh, the builder who was carrying out renovations on our bathroom. Oh, it's okay, you stick the last of the money in and if you've got any problems, just give us a call and we'll be there to fix it. Well, that wasn't written on paper, but it certainly wouldn't have been worth anything if it was written on paper. See, some promises, you just kind of know, well, I can't really depend on those. Life kind of becomes negotiating and working out which promises can you depend on and which promises can't you depend on. Because we live in a world like a whole lot of promises. People make promises to us and it's not just people. So much of life is kind of built on promises. Advertising is kind of a promise. You buy our new phone and, wow, what kind of life you're going to live as a result of that. It's a promise. Are you going to believe that promise? How do we live in a world of promises and a world of what are often hollow or shallow or meaningless promises? We can just kind of jump from promise to promise and kind of hang on to it as long as it lasts and then move on to the next one, just kind of endlessly cycling through things that promise us uh, hope or meaning. Or we can become kind of cynical, jaded, well, I'm only going to trust myself because I've seen how many people break their hollow promises. How do you live in a world of hollow and shallow promises? Well, the part of God's word that we're looking at today provides us with promises and provides us with promises that aren't shallow, that aren't hollow, that actually mean something, promises that you can build your life on. So let's jump into God's Word. If you've got your Bible there, flick back a chapter from what was read to us. Flick back to Hebrews chapter 8 because the kind of argument that we're looking at begins in chapter 8. If you were here last week, you would know that the, the chapters beforehand talked about Jesus, our great high priest, our great mediator, the great go-between between us and God and how superior he is to the priests of the Old Testaments. Today, it's not that Jesus... Well, it is that Jesus is still a better high priest, but we're thinking about the fact that Jesus comes with a better covenant, a better set of promises. Uh, as Tori kind of spoke to the kids before, the picture of a covenant is an agreement. It's an agreement between two people or sets of people that's based on binding promises. So 20 plus something years ago, my wife and I made promises. It's okay, I'll work it out exactly when the time comes. But 20 plus years ago, we made promises that we would love each other, that we would be faithful to each other. They were binding promises. And in moments, it's been very helpful for me to look back on those promises and they shape my life now. Here we have promises and Hebrews wants to tell us that the promises we have in Jesus, the covenant we have in Jesus is superior to the old covenant that God's people lived under in the Old Testament. If you've got your Bibles there, chapter 8 verse 6 is the place to look. The ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs, to the priests of the Old Testament as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one. Jesus' covenant, Jesus' agreement is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. 
So God comes to his people and he binds himself to his people in promises. You see that with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Uh, You see it in the book of Exodus up there in front of you. The book of Exodus describes the covenant that God makes with his people. Particularly if you look at verse 5, God says he's rescued his people. And in verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You can see what's going on there as God speaks to his people. He says, I've rescued you, I've saved you. Now, if you obey me, if you keep my covenants, well, you will be my extraordinarily special people, unlike anyone else. That's the covenant, that's the agreement, the promises God made to his people in the Old Testament. But there's a problem, verse 7. You see, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. If the first covenant was perfect, well, there'd be no need for a second one, would there? I got dressed this morning and I got into my suit because that's what I had to do for the service before. And I walked out in the lounge room and my wife looked me up and down. She said, you're not wearing those pants, are you? Yes, I am. Well, you'd better pack a spare pair because they're looking a little tight in kind of certain places around you. See, she was implying, cheekily, she was implying that perhaps there was something wrong with my current pair of pants and that they ought to be superseded. See, if my pants hadn't somehow magically shrunk, she wouldn't have made those implications or those accusations. They'd be fine. There had been nothing wrong with the first covenant. No place would have been sought for another. But there is a problem with the first covenant that God made with his people. And so Hebrews quotes the prophet Jeremiah as he reflects on God's covenants, his agreements with his people. And this great promise, this great prophecy from Jeremiah, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. See, God, even in the Old Testament, promises there's going to be another covenant because there's a problem with the first one. The problem with the first one, well, look at it there in the middle of verse 9. I made that covenant because they did not remain faithful to my covenants. The problem with the first agreements, the problem with the first binding promises was that God's people walked away from them. The people didn't keep it. And there was nothing in the covenants that really enforced the people, that helped them, that enabled them to keep the covenants. They disobeyed God. They were unfaithful. They didn't remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. God's people walk away from him and God stands against his people in judgments. You see, it's not a covenant that kind of brought God's people together. It's a covenant that ended up kind of with them apart. 
And so in the place of that, verse 10, God promises, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. God says he's going to imprint his word on his people, imprint it in their minds and on their hearts. God is going to take what was external, outside the people, and he's going to make it internal. He's going to put it within them. God is going to enable his people to live faithfully for him. And God himself won't turn away from his people. Halfway through verse 10, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbours or say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. God will be the God of his people. And the reason why, how is this new covenant going to work? What's going to drive this new covenant? In verse 12, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This new covenant will be based on the fact that God will forgive and forget. God will treat his people as if they had never sinned. What a promise. What a hope. You can see why there's a new, the space for a new covenant. Verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. See, Hebrews is saying these are superior promises. This is a superior agreement, a superior covenant. It's actually going to enable God's people to live for him and God is going to be faithfully with his people. So why would you trust any other promises if these are the promises that are in place with God's people? And the Hebrews wants to reinforce that by showing what the old covenant actually did for the people who were under it. So those who were under the old covenant, in effect, the, the, the function of the old covenant was to kind of keep God at a distance from his people. And so the writer of the Hebrews explains that by talking about the tabernacle, the tent that was part of the Old Testament worship. So you see in chapter 9, verse 1, the first covenant had regulations for the worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Now, I've got a picture of it up there. Uh, where, for the, old, the people of the Old Testament, this symbolically was where God dwelt. He lived in the tabernacle amongst his people. And the, God, the people of the Old Testament had this kind of weird experience that they were both close to God, but always reminded of God's separation from them. So they were close to God, but cut off from God. And that was the whole purpose of the tabernacle. You see, there was, well, you read along with Hebrews, uh, as you look at the picture, uh, chapter 9, verse 2, a tabernacle was set up in the first room that you can see there with a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. So that's kind of the first half, the big half of the tent that you can see there. It's the holy place. The little bit behind, well, verse 3, behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. And in there, Hebrews tells us, was the stone tablets, the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of God, the cherubim of glory. This was the place where God symbolically dwelt with his people. 
was kind of the symbol of God's presence with his people there in the Holy of Holies. But who got there? Who actually got into God's presence? Who was actually there with God? Well, look at verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. Who gets into God's presence? Who gets to be with God? Well, even the outer part of the tent, it's only the priests. The real holy of holies, the place where God symbolically dwelt, well, who gets there? Look at verse 7. Only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. Who could stand in God's presence? Out of all God's people, it was one person. And that one person who could stand in God's presence, well, he could do it for one day out of 365. And he could do it one day out of 365 only if, only if, look at it there in verse 7, only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. God dwelt with his people there in the tabernacle, but it was very clear that God was cut off from his people. It was a little bit like uh, back in 1986 uh, in Russia, nuclear reactor in Chernobyl exploded, spewing radioactive material across Russia and across Europe. As part of the cleanup, they thought, what can we do to stop the spread of radioactive material? And so what the Russian engineers did was they built a vast sarcophagus made of concrete and steel that was designed to enclose the radioactive material so that people could kind of live, well, not even close up to it, but people could kind of live with it without being destroyed by it. In a sense, that is what the tabernacle was designed to do for the people of the Old Testament. It was like that sarcophagus. You could live close, but you certainly couldn't come near. You certainly couldn't come in and be with God. So the Old Covenant, this old agreement, is a permanent reminder that you don't belong with God. That he's living with you, but separate from you. And even the sacrifices that the people made were kind of designed to reinforce that. You see, verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. The sacrifices that were given, verse 9, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They were only a matter of food and drink and ceremonial washings, external regulations. See, these promises, well, there would have been some joy to live with them, but a burden as well, because they never really washed your heart clean, they never cleansed your conscience, they never operated on you and did anything internally. They reminded you that you belonged to God, but there was a great gulf between you and God. And certainly the notion that you might step into the Holy of Holies, that you might be close with God, well, no way. Verse 
And so the great news for us is where this part of Hebrews ends, that we are not people who live in this covenant. We are not people who live in this agreement. Because the last thing that Hebrews wants to say to us here is that Jesus brings us hope and freedom. Jesus brings us hope and freedom. When Christ, verse 11, when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands, not part of this creation. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. See, the high priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled blood as a symbol, as a sign of a sacrifice that would pay for sin. What that high priest did as a symbol, as a sign, Jesus does in reality by his own death, by the shedding of his own blood. He enters the most holy place and he does so for us, on behalf of us, for our sake. You see what it says there? When Jesus does this, when he pays for sin by his blood, well, what does that attain for us? Well, it gives us promises that you can build your life on. It gives us promises that you can build your life on. See, what does Jesus' death achieve for us? The end of verse 12... He entered the holy, most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. He wins us freedom. He wins us at redemption, rescue from sin, and rescue from sin that he can describe as eternal, that will go on forever, that is unchanging, that is rock-solid secure. As I said before, the reality of our life is we live in a whirlwind of changing and hollow promises. House, you have a nice house and life will be good for you. You work hard in your career and you'll get all you want. But you see, the last few years have kind of shown us it's hard to be certain about those kind of things, isn't it? You can't be sure about your health. You can't be sure about your job. You can't be sure about the success of your cricket team. Well, we can be sure about the lack of successes of our cricket team. You see, there's a whole lot of hopes that you can pin your life on, but they will let you down. There's a whole lot of hopes that you can pin your life on, but they won't carry through for you. My dad has got a shed and he keeps all sorts of stuff in his shed and the shed is so stuffed full that you can't fit anything on the kind of floor and so he built a mezzanine floor, kind of a wooden floor that's kind of halfway between the floor and the roof. Dad's a bit of a kind of do-it-yourself kind of guy and so he built the mezzanine floor effectively out of kind of the sides of packing cases. You kind of put all this stuff up there. But if you go up there, you've got to be pretty careful because it's kind of built of packing cases. Some of it's pretty flimsy. You've got to know exactly where to stand because you stand one place and it'll hold your weight, but you take half a step away from that and suddenly you, just, you and everything else that Dad stored up there for 50 years will come crashing down. See, so often that is what our hope is like. We place our hope in things that won't sustain us. 
We put our hope in promises that won't carry through for us. That I can trust on my health, my fitness, my superb physical physique. That I can trust my career. If I work hard, invest in the company, well, I'll get the kind of life I want. That I can trust in my friends that they will always be there for me. That I can trust in the lifestyle that I want to build. They'll always be happy, always be enjoying and experiencing something fresh and new. Those promises, they're like my dad's floor. You step on them and ultimately they come crashing down. They don't hold the weight that we put on them. But Jesus promises us an eternal inheritance. Jesus promises us life with him forever in his new creation. You can lose your health and that promise remains secure. You can lose your job and that promise, is remain, that promise remains secure. You can have trouble with your friends and that promise remains secure. Are you building your life on those promises? He promises us eternal redemption. He promises us a clean conscience. Verse 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that, you may, that we may serve the living God? Some of us live with a permanent and nagging sense of our shortcomings. Everywhere we look, we see our failings. Everywhere we look, we see insecurity. Everywhere we look, we see uncertainty. A nagging sense of our own shortcomings. See, brothers and sisters, if that's you, the Son of God gave his life for your forgiveness. The Son of God gave his life to wipe away your sins, to remember them no more to wash us and give us a clean conscience so that we may serve the living God. If your conscience nags you, if you have this sense of guilt, remind yourself that he has died, that you might be clean, pure, righteous in his sight. Hebrews finishes with these great words, the passage before us. For this reason... Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Brothers and sisters, these are promises that you can build your life on. And so I'd encourage you to think, what promises are you building your life on? Are they promises that can sustain the hope you place on them? Because you can trust in Jesus with all your heart and all your mind and all your life. And if you do, you will never be disappointed. Build your life on these promises. Amen.